1: University. university press books i encourage you to go there and check it out welcome to the new books network Greetings, everyone. Welcome to New Books in Finance, a channel of the New Books Network. I am your host, Daniel Paris. I'm delighted to have as my uh, guest today Jeffrey Hook. He is a lecturer at the Carey School of Business at Johns Hopkins University, and he's the author of The Myth of Private Equity. Just came out. It's an inside look at Wall Street's transformative investments. Just came out from uh, Columbia Business School. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show.
0: My pleasure, Dan.
1: So I, I found this book extremely helpful. I work in the industry, as most of the audience will know, although on a different side, the public equity side, I'm subject to extraordinary regulation, transparency, filings, daily measurements of activity, uh, incredible scrutiny on fees, and every which way that I can possibly be examined. And I, it was really striking even for me on the inside to have a glimpse into the private equity world, uh, where almost all the rules that I am subject to don't seem to apply, and yet they exist side by side, public and private equity. Uh, you know what struck me, and maybe you can comment on this: is how these two worlds, how private equity can sort of—I don't know—the uh, phrase "get away" is is, is strong, but uh, get away with being. In the, an investment option that is so almost unregulated compared to other traditional investment stocks and bonds and so forth.
0: Well, let's talk about what private equity is for a second and then we can delve into the intricacies of the lack of regulation. So private equity for you know some of your listeners that may not be familiar with the term is really when large secretive investment funds buy private companies. And so you say, why do they buy private companies? Why don't they just buy publicly traded stocks? Well, they buy private companies because they're trying to improve performance into a rate of return that's higher than the public market. So you're buying private companies, you you hope you can improve them, and you hope you can sell them at some point, and thereby get your investors a higher rate of return. You know, this was once a very obscure place in the capital markets. But in the last 20 years, it's gained a lot of prominence, and you constantly read about private equity deals in a newspaper or financial media. So as you pointed out in your introduction, yes, the the business is pretty much totally unregulated, which may surprise a lot of your viewers, since private equity funds own hundreds or perhaps thousands of companies. There's several thousand funds. There's almost as many funds as there are publicly traded stocks. Yet there's no sheriff on the beat. The Securities Exchange Commission and the various government regulators are not doing anything. So these people have free reign to run around and say they have these tremendous returns and hide their fees and there's no repercussions whatsoever. You gave an example,
1: uh, and you, one you might be fairly close to, but we'll just say a state, a state not too far from your physical location. The pension fund of a state not too far from your physical location uh, really doesn't seem to know actually what's going on with their uh, with their private equity investments. And you suggested that many other states and public entities and pension funds sign off on the narrative, the private equity returns are, and this narrative is very well developed. It may not be true, but it's very well developed higher returns, lower volatility. Anyone who's been to B-School, anyone who's a CFA, anyone who's familiar with the lingo of Wall Street, that's an elixir. That's a magic. Higher returns, lower volatility. And yet the people who sign off on these often can't, it's not only that it's not regulated, it's the, the customers for this product don't really have visibility into the return structure. I was stunned to learn the percentage of, as it were, unsold investments, a technical thing, which you'll explain. But really what it means is that the return pattern that is presented by private equity investors, I'm going to use the term, is made up. And it's extremely hard for customers to know the actual return pattern. How has that been able to go on for so long for uh, these pension funds, these state uh, investment authorities?
0: Well, let's start off with a a little groundwork for the listeners. So when you are running a private equity fund, who are your main customers? The main customers are these gigantic state and municipal pension funds. State of Pennsylvania, where you're based, you know, the pension fund has 80 or 90 billion of assets. It probably has 10 or 15 billion in private equity. So most states, they do not know what they're paying in terms of fees. The fees are hidden even from the customers unless the customer specifically asks for them. So that might strike people as kind of weird for such a large industry, but it has been the case for the last 20 years. And yeah, the state pension fund managers are uh, public municipal managers, they swallow the private equity myth hook, line, and sinker that somehow there's a magical bean, like something you see at Jack and the Beanstalk fairy tale, they believe the urban myth or the fairy tale that you can find an investment that has higher returns and lower risk. As I point out in the book, there's three Nobel laureates who've written many books and papers on finance, and they dispute that. They say that's impossible. You cannot have higher returns and lower risk for any sustained period of time. So yeah, the private equity business has defied financial gravity for the last two decades. And that's part of why the book explains there has to be more information out there for state and municipal pension funds, as well as university endowments and and foundations. So the mark-to-market conundrum, which you point out, is kind of interesting. So you have investment funds that say their transactions are super terrific, Dan that everything we're buying is going up in value and things are just perfectly rosy. But the underlying fact set is not quite as rosy or bright as they point out. As you've indicated, about 60% of all private equity deals that have been bought in the last 10 years have not been sold. So the ironic thing is, there on the one hand, the industry is saying these deals are better than sliced bread. And on the other hand, they can't sell them. So if they were so great, you think the deals would have plenty of buyers, but they don't. So therein lies the irony that you have claims of huge returns, yet the investments themselves, for the most part, remain unsold, and the managers themselves are valuing the investments. So I always say it's a little bit like an eight-year-old grading her own homework. Until these things are sold, you have no idea what the returns are going to be. Yeah, so in my world, I'm graded on my returns
1: almost essentially on a daily basis. But I think for listeners who may not be uh, fully aware of how private equity works, they will show you a return pattern. But part of it is kind of made up because they are, as you say, estimating the the value of the businesses they're holding on their books. The real cash or the real return generated from an investment in a business only occurs when it is sold. And as you've pointed out, uh, an enormous percentage of – Businesses that are bought, highly levered, so forth, uh, have not yet been sold and their return pattern really can't be uh, asserted with any degree of of assurance until the the business is sold. Just to be a little bit fair, and I have no intention to be fair to private equity, but just to be a little bit fair, you do make a a good point that when this business model emerged, uh, the first crop, the first generation appeared to have done it correctly. That is, they bought the businesses... They improved them, even if they took uh, egregious fees. They sold them. They got the cash. They were able to print the returns. That first crop in the 80s and 90s of private equity sort of did what, even though they paid themselves very handsomely, they sort of did what they said they were going to do. The issue has been in pretty much every subsequent generation fees higher, ex- massive expansion of this business enterprise of private equity, all on borrowed money. And the returns that were observed in the first you know, version one O or one one just have not been observed in subsequent uh, in subsequent uh, basis. That is, there is an origin story that's not completely out of line. It's what's become of the industry over the last couple of decades.
0: Is that a fair summary? That's a fair summary. I mean, as a plumb one who works in a Wall Street type job investing, you've seen this pattern before. and this is not atypical. Wall Street finds an investment class that they like. The returns, as you pointed out, in the 90s were higher than the market. So what does Wall Street do? They funnel all kinds of money into that particular asset class. In this case, it was private equity in the 90s that did well. Before you know it, in the early 2000s, there was so much money chasing so few deals that the prices skyrocketed and the investment returns dropped accordingly. So for the last 15 years the private equity business has not beaten the public markets as you suggest as you indicated and because of the private or secretive nature of the business where a lot of the facts are only available through data services that are totally paywalled the fees and the returns are often secret by state law the state legislatures have been urged by the private equity industry to keep things secret. So the myth has perpetuated, as I point out in the book, and the myth has perpetuated for 15 years that these guys running these funds are geniuses and they're hitting the cover off the ball. The fact of the matter is, if you were looking, just compared to baseball, for example, they're all 250 hitters. They're not doing anything especially terrific. The best thing they've done are the most astounding thing they've done is keep their mediocre returns a secret for 15 years. For that, we have to admire them.
1: <laughs> uh, one other thing that, uh, a structural thing, that, and listeners to my shows and, and my other social media will point on, I harp about the 40-year decline of interest rates and ever cheaper debt being a factor in our how capital structure now works, capital markets now work over the last 40 years. And I, and I make a separate argument that's about to change and so forth. But I think the uh, most poster child from my perspective is the private equity world because without declining interest rates, ever declining interest rates and the ability to refinance debt and to borrow cheaply, it's not clear to me that this industry would even exist it would, it would not exist anywhere near the size that it currently does. Can you describe for those listeners the extent for listeners the extent to which this entire exercise occurs on borrowed money? You have plenty of examples in the book. They are shocking people, where the private equity partners might put in 10 or 20 or $30 million for a venture that ends up uh, involving billions and billions of dollars, and the rest is essentially borrowed. And uh, the leverage and the operating leverage or financial leverage that they get from only putting in a tiny amount of capital and then dividending money back to themselves is just striking how, how this, without cheap borrowed money, this whole enterprise, from my perspective, would not Really, would not work.
0: Yeah, it would be it would be far smaller if interest rates were higher because they couldn't afford a lot of the companies that are being sold with higher interest rates. Just like some, and you look at the real estate parallel for many of your homeowners out there. If interest rates climb, then they know that the mortgage payment every month increases as well. So, you know, right now we have very low mortgage rates. Three. 4% 4% in lots of places. If mortgage rates were to go up modestly to 6 or 7%, that would price a lot of people out of the housing market. The same logic is is found in the private equity business as well. They might say, well, how does leverage work? You know, How does it work on a simple basis where you don't have to be a finance professor to understand it or some kind of Wall Street expert? Well, if you go look at a house you're going to buy, so you're thinking of buying a house for investment purposes. So If you borrow, let's say the house is worth a half a million dollars and you borrow 80% of the money. So you've got a $400,000 debt and you put in a hundred thousand of equity. This is how the private leverage buyout business started, except in corporations. So I've got a house for 500,000. I put a hundred thousand dollars down. If the next year, the value of houses goes up by 20%, 20%, the house is now worth $600,000. So I've doubled my money. My equity in the house has gone from 100,000 to 200,000. So the leverage has enhanced the return. However, you know, if the if the investor decided to put up all cash instead of having a 100% return on equity in that year, the house only went up 20%. So the investor who puts up all cash only has a twenty percent rate of return. So you'd say, "Why, my God, borrowing all the money, as you indicated earlier, makes the private equity people look like rocket scientists." But on the other hand, if that house had declined in value by twenty percent, you're wiped out. Your equity goes from a hundred thousand to zero, since the house has declined from. 500,000 in value to 400,000. So equity cuts both ways. And what you see in the PE business, at least in the leverage buyout side of it, is that several companies out of 10 will go bankrupt. So if you look at a typical leverage buyout fund portfolio, you'll have three bankruptcies, three or four companies that do okay, that really maybe are singles to use a baseball Parallel again. And then you might have two or three home runs. So you do not have an even pattern of everything turning out well. You've got two or three winners that basically produce the returns that come somewhat close to public markets. Which is ironic, given the claim
1: of lower volatility, because essentially you're pointing out that it's a high, it's unlike the public markets, which are, you know, uh, singles, doubles, and strikeouts. This is, you know, uh, home runs, grand slams, and completely failing, et cetera. It is it strikes me as more volatile based on the description that you, that you provided. But if you're smoothing your returns and you do do get to smooth your returns in private equity, I don't get to smooth my returns. I would love to smooth my returns. When in private equity you get to smooth your returns, you get to provide the illusion of of, of lower volatility. That's a trick.
0: Yeah, and the interesting thing is, even though you know these private equity titans sit at the top of the mountain, they're billionaires, they sit at the top of the mountain, you might say, gee, they must be kind of lonely up there. But they're not alone. They have many friends that help them perpetuate this fantasy. So they've got the government regulators, which as you point out, are standing on the sidelines. They're not refereeing anything. They're letting this business run as if it's the Wild West. You have the state and federal legislators that have passed legislation that not only hide the fees, but make the interest deductions on the interest much easier and provide lenient bankruptcy laws. And finally, you've got the mainstream business media, which is sort of an echo chamber. If you read anything about private equity in the main business stream media, they're often saying, "Well, this deal returned 10 times, or this these guys just closed a 5 billion dollar deal." I mean, you almost never hear about the various bankruptcies in the business where the equity was wiped out. So, you've got the titans, they have a lot of fellow travelers that are indirectly keeping their businesses afloat and keeping this sort of urban myth of super great returns sustained so let's
1: let's get cuz the the kind of end portion of your book describes that ecosystem and I want to get to that but before we get there let's let's discuss the fee structure a little bit the fee structure for the products that I provide is for better or for worse i might even argue for worse but it is it's printed on the website, <laughs> I mean, and you know, maybe it's a point or two off, or a basis point or two off, but it's basically printed on on the website. So public equities, and and there's just a relentless pressure down, basically to zero. And there there are zero fee public equity products that are out there that creates other problems. But the other the fee structure is largely uh, visible for public equity. I myself got lost trying to follow the fee structure for private equity because there are uh, many different income streams there, and they were astounding amounts. This is even before the company dividends uh, cash back to the to the the private partners. But can you just describe the general fee structure of how private equity works?
0: Okay, well, let's start with the comparison for a publicly traded mutual fund, which is something a lot of your listeners have encountered, or maybe they have a brokerage firm helping run their investments. So often if your investments are 100,000 you're paying say a half a percent on the management side that's what you're paying the mutual fund to manage your investments so 500 dollars out of 100,000 is about a half a percent well on the private equity side despite the investments being huge you know hundreds of millions or billions of dollars you think there would be some economies of scale the fees are much higher so the fixed fee is generally around 2% of the assets under management or the commitments. So that 2% is paid whether the fund makes money or not.
1: And whether the funds are even invested or not, as you yes. pointed out, whether but, they've bought any companies.
0: Right. So if the fund does not outperform the public markets or if even if it loses money, you're paying 2% a year, which some of, you, some of your listeners may say that doesn't make any sense. So I agree with them. The other thing is there's a profit participation, which is often expressed in percentage terms, which is 20% of the profits over some designated annual rate of return, which is usually 8%. So if the fund returns 10%, then the the fund manager gets 20% in addition to the fixed fee. They get 20% over the difference between 10 and 8%, which you say, well, dude, it doesn't sound like much. But if your fund's a billion dollars, that extra percentage could easily be another percentage fee per year. So just to cut to the chase, the typical fees combined for a private equity fund are 3 to 4% off the top. That's something that you... Uh, federated could only dream of <laughs> and like i said two percent is guaranteed whether you make money or not whereas see it at, at a public mutual fund if someone says well you're underperforming you're losing money they can bail out after two or three years private equity you're stuck with it for 10 years you're locked in the contracts are something that even the best professional athlete would envy 10 years no cut fixed contract, whether you make money or not. You no, could, trade, no trade clause. <laughs> right, exactly.
1: <laughs> uh, and then for on a quarterly or monthly or semi-annual or annual basis, they are monitoring and servicing the investments for which they also are charging.
0: Yeah. So as we've discussed, the investment fund buys 10 or 15 companies. And then even though the people running the fund do not know anything about operating a business, they delegate that out to managers. They do collect monitoring fees and other kinds of fees, which are also obscure and hidden, and they would somehow be rolled into the 3 or 4% a year we've talked about. I mean, any way you look at it, any way you slice it, the, the fees are outrageous and undeserved. But again, with all the information being super secret, like President Biden's nuclear launch codes... I mean, most of us are never really going to find out what the fees are. And to the extent that, you know, the state pension fund of Pennsylvania or Montana or California don't care, you know, it's going to stay secret. Well, let's, let's turn to that in, in a reasonably efficient
1: market for ideas, services, goods, automobiles, sledgehammers, doesn't matter if the fees are, are really, really bad. Eventually, The customers will cotton on to that and 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 move on to something else. So you describe you have a chapter in your book about who the typical customers are for this, and it describes basically the large institutions that that are are keen on higher returns and lower volatility. But you know why haven't they? uh, You know they have staffs, and you you know covered some sort of softball question. They have staffs, they have people. Why can't they figure out that the fees are high and the returns are low?
0: Here's the rub. Okay, so if you're running a big state pension fund or if you're running a big university endowment, you are getting paid a lot of money and you probably have a big staff of people and that you tell what to do. So the idea to get that high compensation is you try to make your job look complicated. So in the old days, like when I first started in the business, when I was an investment banker on Wall Street and you know got into a lot of private equity investments my as an executive in the old days you know most of these big pension funds were buying publicly traded stocks and bonds much like your firm does that was their business so then they started thinking there was better alternatives like private equity and hedge funds and commodities and they piled in so things started to seem more complicated the managers at the pension funds and the managers at the endowments could then say it's everything's complicated I got to get paid more And that's their motivation for private equity in large part. You know, they they probably know that the returns aren't so good. But if they were to walk into their board of directors at a state pension fund and say, guess what, fellas? Guess what? I can't beat a simple index fund. I can't do it. It's mathematically impossible with these fees. Therefore, I resign my position. No one's going to do that. So they sort of have a conflict of interest with the fund beneficiaries at these pension plans. And that's a sad thing. No one's really enforcing it. And the situation has been allowed to fester. So what you see is 95% of big state pension plans, university endowments, and so on, do not beat a simple 60, for your audience, a 60-40 index is sort of the institutional gold standard. They can't do it, despite paying tens of billions of years in fees. It's very odd. It's very strange. And it's one thing, as you point out, that you know, the book shines a direct light on.
1: And, and the one person who did appear to do it in the first generation, and therefore everyone can say they're following in his footsteps, was the recently, uh, recently passed away David Swenson at Yale, who took an alternative approach before it was pa- fashionable and may have been very, very good at it as a consequence. The problem, I think, and this is more me as a historian, Sort of putting words in your mouth again. The first generation, this may have been innovative and successful. The problem has been uh, all the follow-on generations aren't able to duplicate Swenson's results, and there are too many people trying to do it, and it's become more of a of an industry unto itself, not as a, an investment option.
0: That's right. The Yale University Endowment was one of the pioneers, along with the state of Oregon and the state of Washington. So yeah, they did pretty well because they were in there, and you know, companies to buy for these funds were still cheap. And Swenson himself, you know, as you suggested later on in his tenure there, pointed out that it would be very hard to duplicate his early success. And even over the last 10 years, the Yale fund has not beaten that 60-40 index. He himself acknowledged that these alternative markets like private equity have just gotten too competitive. Too crowded. So, Given that circumstance, I think
1: the last part of your book is is so important. You know how, uh, in your assertion, a system that really doesn't make a lot of sense doesn't work very well. How it's continued and continued to grow, and the answer is the ecosystem. And there you have some pretty uh, harsh words. It uh, uh, sounds like well deserved for the for the SEC, for state regulators, for investment banks, for investment managers. Maybe you know for pretty much everyone involved is complicit in allowing this to continue, mostly because there's money on the other side, fees, the fees make their way through the system, or it's just excessively complex. They themselves, the regulators don't have the budgets, or there's a revolving door in terms of uh, where they go after being a regulator. There are all sorts of perspectives on this, but in effect, there's an ecosystem that's making this continue. You wanted to, you, you mentioned it earlier, but you just want to highlight the ecosystem that allows an inefficient system to continue.
0: Right. So as you point out, you have no cops on the beat. So the system is kind of unregulated because the government is too thinly staffed to really monitor the public markets, much less the private markets, which have grown enormously. So you got that issue. You also have some conflicts at the government itself where some of the regulators would like to work at the private equity business and multiply their salaries. And, you know, others are just a little intimidated by taking a lawsuit against these gigantic companies they think they're going to lose yeah the legislatures as i pointed out which you know they would be less sophisticated than some of the government regulators but they just do not have enough of a close eye on supervising the state pension funds you know i've been involved in a couple instances where in various states where the beneficiaries these pension funds have tried to put in a little more supervision and they've basically failed miserably. You know, they just can't get through the lobbyists. It's just a sad situation. Even have the accounting businesses, they're supposed to babysit these funds and make sure those portfolio investments are measured properly every year, but they they, they really don't dedicate much resources to making sure the, the market values are checked properly. And they've even Adopted some rules to benefit the industry. And then, as we talked about, you know, sort of the investigative side of journalism, you know, there have been a few articles about it, but it takes a lot of money to investigate an industry like this. It's also a little bit like chasing your tail as a journalist because you're running around, the information is very secretive, and you'd have to spend a lot of money to lift up the rocks and see what's on there. In today's media, you know, which is often more dedicated to access journalism as opposed to investigative pieces, that's just a tough road to hoe. It's a tall mountain to climb. So, you know, the book's sort of an expose. It's it, it's it does shine a light on this. I don't have any real solutions. You know, I I live in the swamp area. I live near Washington D.C. <laughs> and I just don't see any potential for true reforms. I mean, I hope, I hope we get some. Here's
1: where I, I would chime in, which was going to be my next question to you, which is, what makes this change? And I, I do profoundly believe that the forty-year decline in interest rates has structured the capital markets, not just private equity, but a, a great deal of what we do in the finance world and investing world. And that the end of the decline in rates doesn't even have to be an increase in rates; just the end in the decline in rates, which has been a tailwind to every kind of new financial product for, for 40 years, that that will, I'm not going to say cause, provide relief, but it may take away some of the tailwinds that that uh, certain parts of the industry have, have enjoyed that clients may not have. If rates rise... Then I do think that uh, kind of all bets are off, and uh, products and services that have people have become accustomed to over the past forty years are going to change dramatically, and so that may be the solution. I, I just—it's hard for me to imagine a system which, if your rendering is correct, and I have no reason to doubt it, is—is is that dysfunctional can continue in perpetuity, and I, I think that a, a rise in rates, or at least the decline, the end of the decline in rates,
0: may well be the catalyst for that. We'll know in ten years. Precisely. The higher interest rate environment is definitely going to shrink the industry. And I I kind I agree with you. You know, you've been around, you know, at some point the air comes out of the bubble and people sort of wake up. But because of the secretive nature of it, as we've discussed earlier, it's just gonna take a longer period of time. So people say, Well, when is the industry sort of gonna be sort of like the emperor without any clothes? And I say, Well, I'll probably be sitting in a rocking chair on a boardwalk in Florida when that happens. I think in 10 or 15 years, people probably going to wake up. They're going to see the results are not as good. But as we mentioned earlier, look, you've got a 10, 12-year life on these funds legally. The investors really don't know until, say, the end of the 10 years how well that does. So funds that are sort of starting in the last Year or two, and there's been probably a hundred billion in new funds just the last 12 months. (laughs) Strange to hear that, but it's true. We won't know how they're doing until 2030 or 2031. That's the great thing from the fund manager's perspective. You've got hidden returns, hidden values of companies, hidden fees, and a 10 year no cut contract. Dan, it cannot get any better. You should have a lot of envy. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: it, okay. So let me ask you this question: the, you pub, you decide to write this book. You come from the uh, kind of a whistleblower expose account. You were on the inside. You've not. You, you, you're coming out. You're writing this. What has the response been? And and you mentioned that when you were writing this book, in reference to a communication with a, a publisher about, wow, how is this going to play out? So what has the experience been of of writing an expose. And I know it's early days in terms of the book itself, but your your experience with the former industry.
0: I haven't heard too many comments from uh, people in the business, not because uh, they wouldn't have an interest in the subject matter. But as you said, the book's only been out for a couple of weeks. So I expect to hear from more people in the business or see comments on social media. I mean, nobody's been throwing rotten tomatoes at me from Wall Street community yet. yet. It could still well be in the future. I have gotten a lot of, I'd say, positive comments from people that have bought the book and said, gee, it's fascinating. I like the sort of the angle you pushed on it. Uh, I I do think that it does have sort of the unique facet, this book, because it's just been when you do see people that are kind of critical of the industry, and there's a handful of like-minded travelers, uh, you know, they tend to be sort of expert people or academics, and they don't talk in plain English. Whereas this book, it's more accessible. So there's anecdotes, there's some, lots of graphs and charts, and I tried to make it more like a conversation like you and I are having as opposed to some highly technical treaties.
1: And I'd also point out to readers, though, this sounds like a very technical topic, and it is. Uh, Jeff has done a really good job in explaining in simple language the terms how it's not just a critique of private equity; it's actually how private equity works uh, with elements of 101 in it, so that even someone with just a basic familiarity of investments should be able to understand it. And unfortunately, therefore, find it quite shocking. Uh, so, we'll see how the, the the response develops over the next few months, and we'll, we'll hopefully have you back in ten years so we can see how the current crop of private equity funds has, has let, done.
0: Let, let me just add one, you know, point. A lot of people might say, "Well, it's uh, you know, it's sort of highly." niche area. It's a little backwater of Wall Street. But it's true that only big institutions and rich people could invest in private equity. But that was a rule. And so that rule has now been waived. So the Labor Department and the SEC, the Government Regulatory Agency, have just green-lighted private equity being stuffed into the portfolios of widows and orphans and 401ks for regular people. So uh, for for those in your audience that have a 401k, they better check with the administrator and watch out.
1: With that note of caution, uh, the book is The Myth of Private Equity, An Inside Look at Wall Street's Transformative Investments uh, by Jeffrey Hook, just out from Columbia Business School Publishing. Jeff, thank you so much uh, for being on the show.
0: My pleasure, Dan.